they changed the rules after London and I failed under the new the new rules so they decided that I didn't get enough points and it wasn't an easy classification as I said I've got chronic pain in my feet the classifiers were pulling them around they were squeezing them and uh, when I was unable to walk away from the physio bed afterwards I was in so much pain they asked me why I was pretending to be paralyzed oh my goodness yeah yeah it was it was it was a really really um I suppose harrowing experience and then the next day I learned that I'd failed and that I hadn't got enough points and it was just I suppose the singular most heartbreaking thing to find out you know my I put everything into this my my heart my soul I I loved competing I it, it was just the best job in the world and welcome to the Women of the Future podcast, a podcast made in collaboration with the Women of the Future programme, a platform built to unlock a culture of kindness and collaboration among leaders, as well as support and celebrate the successes of women. I'm Kim Rowell and I won the media category at their awards in 2018 in recognition of my continued work as a commissioner, producer and children's author, particularly within the mental health remit. I'll be talking to my guests on this podcast about their careers, who or what gave them their first big break, their successes, failures and inspirations along the way, and how they came to be a part of the Women of the Future Network. Danielle Brown, MBE, is a Paralympic gold medalist and law graduate who now works as a keynote speaker specialising in performance mindset and inclusion. Suffering from a complex regional pain syndrome in her feet, Danielle won gold medals at both the Beijing and London Paralympic Games. She has also won medals shooting in the able body categories, including another gold at the Commonwealth Games in Delhi in 2010. With the intention of inspiring and empowering people to unlock their own potential, overcome adversity and achieve more, her recently published children's self-development book, Be Your Best Self, is a collaboration with Nathan Kai, who was seven years old at the time of writing and determined to reach his full potential. Danielle was the recipient of the Woman of the Future Award in the sports category in 2016. So I grew up in North Yorkshire and I I didn't come from a place of privilege but I did come from a place of love and support and my family were absolutely amazing and they gave me some really key uh, messages for I guess my future success and a lot of that was about there's no such thing as can't so my parents wouldn't let me use that in my vocabulary at all and the other thing it was it was about putting the work in as long as I'd given something a hundred percent then win or lose they they were never disappointed in me and I think really those messages set me up for life. Was that their mindset was that their own upbringing that was influencing the things they were saying to you? I don't think so I, I don't think that they got those messages and I mean this was obviously a long time before growth mindset was out there and we knew a lot more about the effort versus natural abilities But I don't think it was necessarily a way that they'd been brought up. But I guess you always learn from your upbringings, don't you? You learn what you'd like to do and maybe sort of areas that you you might want to do a bit differently. Did you enjoy school? Did you study hard, play hard? What were you like as a child? Oh, I did love school. I was very academic. 
And yeah, I did work hard. I think that I said those messages that my parents gave me, I, I guess I really took to heart. And I worked so hard. I, I have to admit, I wasn't the most popular person at school. So I got a really small group of friends who were fantastic. And the wider circle, you know, there's quite a bit of bullying and other things going on, which, which weren't particularly pleasant. Why was that, do you think? I think partly kids being kids, but I think I didn't necessarily fit the mould, you know. I think the way my parents brought me up, it was try everything. If there's an opportunity there, say yes to it. We used to spend our weekends camping, so we'd be outdoors all the time. We'd be doing lots and lots of exercise. And I guess those are the things that were important to my parents, and they became quite important to me. And I guess I didn't necessarily, in many ways, try and conform to what everybody else is doing. So I was kind of branded the weirdo. It's sad that that's the way it is, and that kids can be very hard on each other. You grew up in Yorkshire, didn't you? I did, yeah, hence the accent. (laughs) (laughs) But you obviously, like you were saying, surrounded by beautiful countryside, so Mm. capitalising on going out and about with your family. Is that how archery was introduced to you, or was that through some other means? No, so we, well, as I said, we did lots and lots of exercise, so lots of walking, lots of cycling, lots of running. And I became disabled as a teenager, so it started when I was 11 years old my feet started to hurt after I'd been running. By the time I was 13, I was in so much pain that I was just struggling to walk and taking part in a lot of those sports that I'd really, really loved as a child. It was just impossible. I hadn't actually got a diagnosis. It took me until I was 16 to get that diagnosis. And my very first trip to London was to Great Ormond Street Hospital. That's a long time, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think at the time, the condition, there really wasn't much known about it. And it's I suppose in terms of diagnosis, it's one of those things where it's diagnosed by exclusion. So I had to go through lots of tests. Some doctors accused me of making it up because it's chronic pain. You can't actually see it. So it was was a really, really tough time. When you say exclusion, they're just seeing what it isn't, I guess. Yeah. Big long checklist that tests for different conditions. If it wasn't that, let's move on to the next one. It's not that right. And complex regional pain syndrome seem to be right at the bottom of a very long list forgive me but I mean it seems quite niche is it is it niche is it are there lots of people that suffer from it I think it's one of those things that more people know about it now than than they did and they've actually managed to trace back some of the first or first time it was recorded actually in the American Civil War so you know it has been around for a while it's just people haven't necessarily known known what it was but yeah at the moment because there is slightly more information out there people are getting diagnosed quicker than they would do certainly when I was I was growing up. You obviously being quite sporty and active you still wanted to pursue those lines of expressing yourself and you know as as kids you kind of want to go and run around obviously not being able to do that so capably were you looking for something as an outlet for your kind of sporting endeavours or is, how did archery yeah. come into it? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Uh, that's, that's exactly what happened. I loved but missed not being able to do it. I didn't know anything about Paralympic sport at the time. So this was, um, I started archery in 2003. Yeah, and, and just the information wasn't there. And I suppose because I'd not been diagnosed yet, I didn't really consider myself to be disabled. I mm. knew walk very far I couldn't run 
but because I suppose I hadn't got a label for it, I just assumed that one day I'd get better. Yeah. And it was about finding the right cure. So yeah, I was just looking for a sport that didn't involve running around walking. It's about swimming, but you know, playing with bows and arrows just seemed a bit more fun than bobbing up and down in a ball. <laughs> a little bit more dangerous. <laughs> Not very well. I I mean, people seem to assume that, but it's actually well quite a safe sport, providing you you know you follow the um, the safety regulations on the range. I've spoken to you about this before because we've met a few times through like Women of the Future networks and things like that. And the first thing, like, I cringe now because I was like, oh yeah, I used to do archery. And that was kind of like my opening line to you. And then someone, I think, from the network pulled me aside and was like, you do realise she's a Paralympic gold medalist, Kim. <laughs> and I was just like, okay, right, yeah, she might be slightly better than I am at it then. <laughs> so oh, I apologise for that. Do you know what? I think it's so brilliant, though. It's, it's, <laughs> it's so low profile. It is really great when people have tried it because I think there is that assumption, you were saying before, about it sometimes being a dangerous sport because, you know, it is or, or could be classified as a weapon. Mm. Same as anything, you know, I guess your kitchen knife could be branded as a weapon if you yeah. used it in a, a certain way. So, you know, I, I think sort of the more people that get to try it. And I guess that's one of the things I'm really passionate about is I do believe that there is a sport for everybody. And whilst I did love sport at school, I never really got on very well with all the team ones. And um, whilst I was really active and sporty, I enjoyed it, but I wasn't very good at any of the sports that I tried. And it was finding archery and finding a sport that actually I was really good at and I really, really enjoyed and I was really passionate about. Just realised that there is a sport for everybody. And I think, yeah, people getting to try all these different sports is amazing. So you started in 2003. How old were you then? 15. So it was my 15th birthday. Is that, is, is that, a late, is that late in life to pick up archery or is that fairly normal? So I think people can start as young as eight. And I think... It, it depends in terms of international standards because it's a sport, I suppose, that you don't necessarily have to be as fit or that, that endurance that you see in a lot of other sports. I mean, fitness is still important. I, I think you can get to a, a good level at a much older age. So I was competing in London 2012. I was 24. One of my teammates was 64. I think the other thing I find interesting is that I actually met my husband at archery and he's he's an engineer so he's got a really mathematical brain and I work in like creative in the creative areas and I always found it a lot harder and he was quite naturally better than me do you think there's something in in that in that if you have a more analytical because archery is a lot about repetition of essentially repeating exactly the same thing over and over again, isn't it? So do you, yeah. think there's, do you think there's an argument there that if you have a brain that is more aligned to being strategic and or more about data and how you can refine things that you might be better at it than someone who that doesn't naturally come to? It's a really, really interesting point. And you know, I've never thought of that before. I, I think I'm not I'm not sure whether that that will make masses of difference. Like I, I think that you see so many different people who are really good at it with different personalities, different backgrounds. Yeah. I do think obviously having the you you've got to be passionate 
about it and I think that sort of um, underpins everything because if you if you want to be good at it or, or good at anything you've got to put the time and effort in to achieve mm. so being able to turn up day in day out and practice that very repetitive technique is very important so if you didn't have the passion there that'd be quite difficult I mean I don't have a particular technical mind so when it came to actually working on my gear I'd, I'd look at my uh, bow and I would know how to make simple repairs but mm. I couldn't see when I looked at it in order to get this result I had to do this so you know having somebody around me who could work on my equipment was really really important. So when did you realise you know you said you were 15 when you started when did you realise that you're actually pretty good at this and that it could be your career ultimately? Oh um, I suppose in terms of realizing when I was I was getting better, I think I think it was actually people in my club that kept saying I got potential, which was really amazing. And they were the ones that encouraged me to start going to local tournaments. And I actually remember my first local tournament. I actually shot a personal best. Ooh. And like I mean, score score wasn't amazing, but I kind of realized at that point that I loved competition and I could actually perform better when I was put under pressure. And I think really that was that was something that helped me progress. And I think because of their encouragement, my, my club's encouragement, they really sort of encouraged me to start going to more regional competitions. They got me shooting with the adults in the senior class whilst I was still a junior. So that when I turned 18, it wasn't that much of a big step. I was already doing it. And yeah, I went to my first international competition three years later. It was a bit of a tough time because I got my A-level results, found out whether or not I made it into university. And I was uh, wanting to go to University of Leicester, study law. And yeah, I was out competing at the European Championships. That's bonkers. Yeah. (laughs) Did you go to university? I did. I did. I got my grade. I went to to university and I really enjoyed it. In 2000 and, crikey, I can't even remember, 2007, I won the World Championships. That was my second second year competing internationally. And like that moment, I was like, right, I can go to Beijing. I, I can win a medal. And that's what I want to do. So my uni let me take a year off so I could focus on Beijing. And then I went back to my second year after. That must have blown your mind <laughs> at the time because studying law as well, that's no mean feat. And then also competing on a global level. So you're competing at the very best of your sport that's pressure like no other really yeah you know I think I was pretty pretty insane (laughs) Um, it it was just really hard work really time consuming and I think after I got back from Beijing because I'd I'd won a gold medal out there people kept inviting me to different events and it was just amazing you know and I'm like wow you know I might never get this opportunity again so I'd be turning up just to you know the opening of an envelope really and then I got all my studies to go back to and I got my training so my second year was really really tough and I, I thought for my third year I've I've really got to do something about this and mm. more structured better at time management and I mean I got there I, it was so hard you know like social life completely uh died it was about studying it was about shooting and I was traveling up to the national training center three times a week to make sure I could get all my arrows in is it something that you look back on now and think, I don't know how I did this, but at the time you actually took it in your stride and made it work? How do you kind of view it now? 
Yeah, I, I think it's one of those things that when you're in the moment, you've got your goals that you want to achieve. So it's a case of finding out how you can do it. But when you do take a step back, you're like, that was pretty bonkers. <laughs> and, I, you know, the start of every semester uh, or the, the end of every semester and the start of every holiday, I'd get really sick. And I think it was just my body mm-hmm. saying, right, I've had enough. And you, you know where you stop and, and, and your body kind of just caves. And, and that's kind of the state that I I'd got myself into which you know when you look back actually wasn't particularly healthy no not at all you've competed in both disabled and able-bodied competitions is that because you lost your funding or was that a conscious choice you made no it was a it was quite an unusual start to that I mean I think in archery we don't really have any disabled domestic competitions so uh, whether you've got a disability or not you all compete together there's only really that big distinction when it comes to international competitions and um, I was in my my third year at uni the paras we'd often go out to the Arizona Cup around Easter time to do a bit of pre-season training and I was out there and I I shot a a world record on my birthday which is very nice (laughs) Um, and then the next day I beat it and I was like wow you know starting the season on personal best and then beating again is just amazing And I got back to my room and found an email from the England team manager saying that I got the scores for the Commonwealth Games and would I like to go to the selection uh, shoot the following weekend? My teammates kind of twisted my arm and it didn't take too much convincing playing bows and arrows or sitting inside with a dusty law book. No contest really. So yeah, I went along to the selection shoot and won it, which was just, uh, just incredible. It's just remarkable just to hear you even talk about it. You know, I set a world record and I beat it the next day. To me, it sounds like superhuman feats. Listening to you talk about it, it just sounds like you were really enjoying yourself and it's something that you remember fondly and you're quite rightly particularly proud of. Does it feel like that? Yeah, and I think as well, I think this is what I found out because I am now retired from sport. And I've still taken quite a lot of stuff with me from sport. And I think particularly that mentality. And I, I think you come from an environment where better never stops. And I suppose people don't, I guess, always understand this, that you'll say you, you break a world record and then the next day you'll be in with the coaches looking at how you can make it better. And you're obviously really pleased that you've done that, but it's always about the next competition. So whilst you've got these amazing achievements, you know, you can't really just rest on that and rest on your laurels. You've got to keep looking forward and pushing forwards. Mm. But I found that that's something now I've, I've moved away from sport. I found that it's a mindset that I don't often see elsewhere. I mean, you did unfortunately lose your funding, didn't you? Can you talk me through that period of your life and kind of what went through your mind and how you felt and how you dealt with it? Yeah, that was really tough. So, uh, and, it, and it wasn't just funding. Uh, I lost the, the ability to compete. So um, after London 2012, the International Paralympic Committee decided to change the rules. Every Paralympic athlete has to be classified to determine whether their disability is severe enough to be included. And I'd always pass this with flying colours. And it is always a really bittersweet moment, you know. It's like, uh, on one hand, I can go to the Paralympics, that door's open for me. But I really didn't realise I was that bad. So, um, yeah, it was always quite tough. But they changed the rules after London. 
and I failed under the new the new rules so they decided that I didn't get enough points and it wasn't an easy classification as I said I've got chronic pain in my feet the classifiers were pulling them around they were squeezing them and uh, when I was unable to walk away from the physio bed afterwards I was in so much pain they asked me why I was pretending to be paralyzed oh my goodness yeah yeah it was it was it was a really really um I suppose harrowing experience and then the next day I learned that I'd failed and that I hadn't got enough points and it was just I suppose the singular most heartbreaking thing to find out you know my I put everything into this my my heart my soul I I loved competing I it was just the best job in the world and I remember sort of saying to them what do I do now you know I've, I've given everything to this and I got told that with a CV like mine I, I shouldn't find it difficult to get a job so um yeah I I didn't take that advice on board and I actually protested the decision I, I was supported by the the British Athletes Commission who were, were wonderful and they helped me put a legal team behind me because I, I think I went through all the different stages of grief you know like I didn't believe it to start with I thought that it'd taken doctors five years to actually figure out what I got and these physiotherapists with not a hundred percent grasp of English I thought they just didn't understand what was wrong with me so we protested it and I failed again and I actually made it worse so people with my disability can no longer compete at a Paralympics so yeah it was just it was just so so tough. Why did they decide to change the criteria it seems nonsensical to me but obviously I know very little about it was it just something that is it something they do regularly or was it just a reaction to something what were they trying to achieve I guess? I think, and you know, I, and I think I'm doing a bit of reading between the lines, but also what our athlete rep was saying. But I, I think London 2012 really turned the Paralympics into a viable financial product. And before London, you know, it had never, it never really been huge. And I, I remember the media coverage around both. I think, I think. Um, I got a whole a whole 30 seconds coverage in Beijing and London it was it was just insane which which was amazing but it became this viable financial product and I think that the athletes we don't understand classification so trying to explain it to viewers back home was mm. very very difficult and I think the media did such a fantastic job trying to do that but it was so complex and I think people can't understand why a person with certain disabilities competing against somebody with a with a different disability. So I think they just tried to clarify it, but in doing so, it became more exclusive rather than inclusive. I find it fascinating. I mean, obviously, you were, you were still really young at this point, like 24, 25, something like that. Yeah, 25 at the time, yeah. And since then, you stopped competing and you now work doing speaking events and focusing and specialising in performance mindset and inclusion. And you've also very recently had a book published. You've written it with a, a very capable young man. But is it focusing on children's self-development or is it for everybody? So that one's focusing on children's self-development. So yes, yes, my, uh, my co-author is, uh, is absolutely wonderful. It was his idea. So he wanted a book that could help him become the best he could be there wasn't anything out there so he asked her whether I would be able to write one with him so how old is he he's 10 now he was seven when we started writing so it took us a his aim was to get it finished by his eighth birthday 
and mm. we managed to get our first draft just done I think just in time sneaked it sneaked it through and I took him to the London Book Fair a month later and honestly my uh, my goal was to get him there and back without losing him I've never been responsible for a child before so uh, <laughs> and, uh, get, get myself across London's always a mission never mind uh, <laughs> never mind somebody else but um yeah so uh, we, we managed that but also walked away with the book deal which was incredible that's brilliant and am I right in thinking he came up to you you were speaking at his school and he came up to you afterwards Nathan's actually homeschooled but uh-huh. um, I was speaking at a mentor event so it was all about what does it take to be the best in the world and I was just so impressed actually how confident he was and the fact that he had a problem you know he really wanted this book but he thought of the solution to it you know so many people when they've got a problem they just think oh that's it or I can't do it I can't go any further and he's like, well, that book doesn't exist. How can I fix that? Let's write one. So I was just so amazed by that. I, of course, wanted to be on board. One of my favourite mantras is be the change. And that's exactly that, isn't it? You think there's yeah. nothing out there that you feel that you can benefit from. So do it yourself, essentially. Absolutely, absolutely. So throughout your life and career, and as varied and as weird and wonderful as it has been, is there anyone who stands out for you in particular as a mentor or someone that you saw as a guiding light or a family member even? Oh, that's been so difficult because I think so many people have helped me. And I think that you never, ever fail or succeed on your own. Even like if it's an individual pursuit, you've got a whole team around you. And I mean, I I guess there are so many different people that I look at and I think support me in different ways. I think when you look at your support network, there are people that are really, really great in different areas. So, you know, my family have been so supportive right from day one. Um, without their support, I really doubt that I'd have been able to achieve all that I have done. My coaches were amazing. I mean, when I moved to the National Training Centre, one of the reasons I chose to to move to the Midlands and train full time there was one of the coaches and he, he wasn't a GB coach, he just lived in the area. And he was fantastic. You know, he didn't have to ask me how I was doing. He could just read it from my body language. And I, I don't think I'd give that much away. But mm. he knew if I was having a bad day or a good day just by looking at me. And he knew exactly what to say. And um, I was really pleased after London. I, I, was, I was really looking forward to a duvet day. And <laughs> you know, I think loads of people think big parties and whatnot, but no, I, I, I wanted just to slob out on my sofa with cookies, pizza, films, and that, that's just what I was really looking forward to because I'd spent the whole year working towards um, that competition, really not having much break or, or many, much time to, to have a bit of an out. And I was like halfway through my duvet day and I got a phone call saying somebody's dropped out of the able-bodied World Cup finals. You're next in line. So the top eight in the world get to go like would you like to go so I was like yeah but only if my personal coach can come with me did you put down the cookies and the ice cream and you were like yeah "Yeah, all right all right (laughs) yeah exactly so this is Thursday I flew out on the Tuesday and it's just like I'd already had a week and a half off and yeah very reluctantly put down those cookies but it was just an opportunity I couldn't pass up but I you know I'm really really pleased I got to take my coach there and and share that with him because he'd supported me so much and at that event I actually got a silver I was what one point away from the gold but it was just amazing and his support just standing behind me and he's like you've got this you've got this and it, it was just really really incredible 
I think everyone needs someone like that in their corner, don't they? Absolutely. So how did you first hear about the Women of the Future programme and how did you get involved? Oh, well, um, I actually got introduced to Pinky because I was doing a research project around um, women in business and really wanting to understand the barriers that women face to inform my speaking, my workshops, and also putting together a bit of literature. So I was interviewing lots of different women in lots of different fields. And somebody said, uh, I have to speak to Pinky. So they gave me her email address. I reached out and Pinky said, of course, you can come down for an interview. So um, I drove all the way down to interview her. And it was just amazing. I think she spent the first half an hour grilling me on my story rather than the other way around. And we had this wonderful conversation and she was really, really open and shared her story, which was just hugely, hugely inspiring. And then as I was leaving, she like insisted that I apply for Women of the Future Awards. And she said that the deadline was in a couple of days, so I've got to get on it. And uh, yeah, she packed my bags full of chocolates for the ride home. She's a feeder, isn't she? I found I know, I know. <laughs> It was just so lovely and I was like, you know what, I've got nothing to lose, Um, I I might as well apply for it. So I got home and applied for the awards, found out that I got got shortlisted and uh, won later that year, which was just incredible. How has it been for you being part of this network? Because for me, it just feels like no other network that I've been part of. It's just quite unique and remarkable and supportive. Have you found that? Yeah, absolutely. I I think it was one of those ones where everybody who you meet through Women of the Future just is so nice and helpful. And if you don't know something or you really want uh, help in a certain area, people might not know in the room, but they might know somebody else to put you in touch with. And I just think having that huge connection and, and that ability to collaborate is so important. Right, we've got to the quick fire questions. Are you ready? Oh, right, yep. What would you describe as your greatest success? Uh, gold medals in London and Beijing. Do you have a gold letterbox? I do, yeah. Where is it? It's up in Skipton, so, um, near, well, the sort of local town to where I lived. Have you been to see it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got a plaque there with my name. Every time I walk past it, my mum's like, it's hers. Uh, yeah so embarrassing and your greatest failure my greatest failure oh probably failing my classification even though that wasn't my fault and I really shouldn't see it as a failure because it it wasn't something that I I did but um yeah okay the mantra of women of the future is kindness and collaboration what does that mean to you in both your personal and professional life Oh, so kindness, I think for me is so important. And I think if you can help somebody, I I think it it makes you feel great. And I think also if if you're helping other people, they're more likely to either pass it on or they might come back a few years down the line and help you out. So I think it's just a win-win. And I think the more people that you can help and affect, I just think it really does help propel you forwards, both, I suppose, on an emotional level, but also in terms of progressing your career forwards. Is there anything that scares you? I think failure scares me and the thought of failure, and particularly at the end of my sporting career, I had developed a big fear of failure. But I think it's about learning how to manage that. And I think fear is something that can actually 
be more paralyzing than the problem itself and, and we're very good at magnifying things in our brain so I've developed lots of tools in order to reduce that down what's left on your to-do list so many things so many things um I want to write some more books so few work in progress at the minute I would like to grow my business and also through that I would like to help other athletes because I know that retiring isn't easy you know I went through a complete identity crisis so it'd be nice to as a grow the business being able to support other athletes help them have meaningful careers after sport. Do you do mentoring and coaching? I do yes yes so I do a bit of mentoring through the Mintridge program with young people but I do um, my own personal coaching for people, particularly women, in terms of, I guess, their own business and lifestyle. I know you've got business coaches in life, but I just think it's so important to merge the two. So I take much more of a, I guess, a performance approach. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been quite a unique situation on Zoom. How, how have you been finding the, you know, existing and living and trying to manage within the, the pandemic? Have you kind of adapted well? How are you finding it? Yeah, do you know, I think I'm adapting quite well, but I do think, and I, th- I think this is quite fascinating actually, because obviously having a disability some days that, or some weeks, I am stuck at home because I, I can't get out. So I think in some ways I've, I've had, not necessarily for this length of time, but I've had lots of practice about having to stay positive, being confined to the house. So I've managed to develop a routine through that which is coming really handy at the minute but for me I think it's just about staying positive I think it is about knowing and expecting things will get better and it's about trying to come out the other side having learned new strategies new skills so, so you'll be better off when we're allowed back out. I find you so inspiring thank you for sharing your story with us. Well thank you it's been great to be involved. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Women of the Future podcast. If you enjoyed it, please hit the subscribe button. And while you're there, why not give us a rating and review? You know you want to. For more about the Women of the Future Awards, network and initiative, please visit www.womenofthefuture.co.uk. See you soon.